Tonight we come to you from the traditional territories of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish First Nations who have lived on and continue to call these lands home. Haichika. Tonight we're talking about workplace accessibility, not just accessibility, but workplace accessibility, which you hear more of these days, you hear more about it, and for good reason. Being an accessible organization is essential when creating a strong and inclusive workplace and society. It's good business. It's good business in so many ways, namely culture, caring, respect, ingenuity, and it's good for the bottom line. Companies with diverse workplaces are twice as likely to meet or exceed financial targets, six times more likely to be innovative, six times more likely to anticipate changing economic conditions and then adapting to meet new opportunities. Tonight's Conversations Live is a challenging one. That's partly because I have a desire to see barriers removed so that all people who can add to and want to contribute to organizations can. And at the same time, I'm all too aware of the challenges in realizing this aspiration. Now, just before we begin, I'm going to express my wholehearted gratitude to our sponsors who make this evening possible. Without them, we just couldn't do it. Our presenting sponsors are RBC, KPMG, and Helijet. Our event sponsors are Stem Cell Technologies, BD, Fortis BC, Landlord BC, Polygon, the Port of Vancouver, the Digital Technology Supercluster, Research Co., and our media partner is the Vancouver Sun. Our supporters are BCIT and Canadian Beef. And I want to especially thank Apogee Public Relations and give a big shout out to my team at Old Boy Productions, who are experts in live online and virtual event production. Now, one last thing for anyone who wishes to pose a question, whether you're online or if you're here in the room, please go to slido.com, enter the password conversations and send in your question. Sean, our Slido master down here at the end of the panel, will be receiving your comments and questions and bringing them forward to us. Well, we won't be able to get to all of them. Your questions will help to inform me and others on the panel about topics and questions that we'll be asking through this evening. So to further set the stage, here is Mario Canseco of Research Co., who just conducted a poll about our opinions collectively on and about how we're doing in providing access to employment. Samaya, can you please play Mario's video? About one in four BC residents who live with a disability say they face barriers of a technological nature, such as devices not being accessible to those who need assistance. Slightly more BC residents with a disability deal with barriers that are related to communications or architecture. Still, the challenges that BC residents with a disability have to contend with the most are systemic, such as policies that unfairly discriminate, and behavioral, such as assumptions that limit their contribution to society. While our survey shows some progress on specific issues, there are unsettling statistics on others. We see that more than a quarter of BC residents who live with a disability had access to quiet areas in a workplace or school when needed, and more than one in five were able to rely on special supports to complete their work or studies. However, 
more than a third of BC residents who live with a disability were negatively stereotyped or judged by their colleagues, and one in five had difficulty entering a venue because it was not suitably designed. Most residents tend to be happy with the way Canada and BC are equipped to assist people with disabilities, but the level of satisfaction is significantly lower for municipalities. These findings suggest that local governments have plenty of work to do to ensure that amenities are accessible to everyone. Municipalities also face a different challenge in ensuring that urban areas are friendly for residents with learning disabilities or those more likely to experience sensory overload. When we look at specific places, however, the differences are staggering. Only 57% of BC residents who live with a disability are satisfied with the capabilities of stores and malls, compared to 76% among those who do not live with a disability. It is also important to note that at this stage, fewer than half of BC residents who live with a disability are satisfied with the makeup of workplaces and the numbers are not significantly better for parks, beaches, and universities. For Conversations Live, I'm Mario Canseco from ResearchGo. Thank you, Mario. It's now my pleasure to introduce you to our impressive panel. Stephanie Cadu, Canada's Accessibility Commissioner. Wendy Lissakar Kochia, or Kokia, with Pacific Autism Network. Parm Hari, the VP of People, Process, and performance at the Port of Vancouver. Mark Wafer is joining us virtually from Toronto. He is one of Canada's leading disability rights activists. Kathleen Reed, founder and chief communications officer at Switchboard PR. And from Ottawa, the acting chief commissioner at Canadian Human Rights. Oops, I didn't mention your name, Charlotte. Charlotte Ann. Malchuski. <laughs> Apologies. And we also have video clips from Jillian Frank of KPMG and Joel Denby of RBC. You know, as I prepared for our conversation tonight, I thought and read about people who have fought for inclusion. Those fights include gender, culture, heritage, faith, and of course, civil rights. I was struck by the fact that disabilities affect all sectors of our society. Disabilities do not discriminate. In fact, people with disabilities are one of the largest minority groups in North America. People with disabilities make up the largest minority group in the world, and that number is growing. As we age, our bodies change, our eyesight changes, fades a bit, our hearing changes, our balance, our brains lose more cells every day than they create, our muscles diminish. In other words, changing abilities are going to affect the majority of us. The market for and of people with disabilities is valued at about $600 billion in North America. It's a significant market. And as Arnold Chang, who is a member of the Oh Boy Productions team points out, in commercials that feature people with disabilities, where they are seen and treated as integral members of society, those commercials send an additional message. And that message is, we serve everybody. It's a positive message to a market that has been underserved and overlooked. I'm also mindful of this line in Dr. Martin Luther King's speech, I Have a Dream. He noted people of color live on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. 
The reality is people with physical and neuro challenges live on those same lonely islands. It's time for us to build bridges that provide access that is their right. Recognizing that not everyone has equal abilities and that not everyone wants to or can work, but everyone who wishes to contribute deserves access that will provide them with opportunities to realize their potential. When we build more and more of those bridges, people with disabilities will benefit in greater numbers and so will all of society. I want to start just right at the moment with a clip from Joel Demby. Samaya, will you please roll that clip and then I'm going to come back to our panel and I'm going to ask you for your opening thoughts and also your reaction to Joel's clip. Samaya? When I was a Paralympian, I felt that we were making traction, but I think the more I'm entrenched in the corporate workforce, the more I simply don't see myself represented. And the stats back me up. You know, many people with disabilities still live in poverty in Canada. Many of those who do work are in low paid jobs. There is still an element of being invisible. Commissioner Cadu, it's a bit of a st sad statement, isn't it? It is. And I'm just going to correct my title. Um, I'm the Chief Accessibility Officer. Wow. The Accessibility Commissioner uh, at the Human Rights Commission is Michael Gotthill. Ah. Um, Thank you. Yep. He's the bad cop. I'm the good cop. <laughs> um, <laughs> no. Uh, he's a great guy. Um, but uh, it, Joel's comments are sad, um, but they are not something that I'm not familiar with. Um, we aren't making the progress that we should. We haven't made the progress that we should. We have, uh, we have a long ways to go. What's preventing us from moving forward? Attitudes. Really? That's what? Attitudes. We can have all the policy in the world. We can make all the statements that we want. We can have all the intent but until we change the intent to action, it really doesn't matter. And the thing that prevents us from moving from words to action are the biases that we hold un in our unconscious, that society has accepted that disability is less. Mark, you're coming to us from Toronto right now. You fought against this. You went out and opened one Tim Hortons and another and another and another, and you were facing these challenges. When you hear what uh, Joel has to say right now, what's your response and what is your recommendation on how we move beyond this? Well, <clears throat> my, my response is uh, I'm not surprised at all. Uh, these are the kinds of responses that we hear on a regular basis. And one of the things that the, the young man said was that uh, those who are in the workforce tend to be in low-paying jobs, and that's a that's a real that's a really um, important uh, point that he's making because that is the truth. If you take a look at the to demographics, uh, 5.6 million Canadians of working age have a disability, and according to StatsCan, more than 50% of those people are not working. So you already have a huge talent pool of people with disabilities who are usually educated, usually skilled, and uh, uh, typically looking for that opportunity to find work. And, and, and they, they, they can't. And they can't because of attitudinal barriers. But if you take a look at 
how we count unemployment numbers. Fifty percent of those five point six million are unemployed, but that doesn't include anyone who doesn't have marketplace attachments. So once you add in people who have no marketplace attachment, you're actually closer to a seventy percent unemployment rate. Eighty-five percent who, if you're like me, I'm deaf. So if you've got, a, if, you, if you happen to be deaf or have a poor, poor hearing, your 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 chances of working are only about fifteen percent. If you're autistic or from the autism spectrum, your chances of working are much less because you've got an eighty-eight percent unemployment rate. So there's, you know, hearing these negative comments, systemic barriers, um, barriers being the, the greatest attitude, the attitude being the greatest barrier to to, to getting people into workforce, no surprise to me. What did you do within your organization to address this, though? Because you, uh, within your company, made an, an absolute point of ensuring that people who represented a much broader spectrum of society had access to jobs. How were you able to do that and make your business work? Well, we were very privileged to have great workers, and just many of them just happened to be people with disabilities. Uh, we, we started our first Tim Hortons in, in Scarborough, which is on the east end of Toronto, in the early 90s. Um, I hired a young man who had Down syndrome. I didn't have a lot of experience being around people with intellectual disabilities at the time. I enlisted the help of a local agency to help me train this young man. His name is Clint Sparling. Um, he was 23 years old when he walked through the door. And I knew that if he was knocking on doors looking for a job, the barriers, I mean, we're talking about the early 90s. It was even different back then. Um, he wouldn't be able to find his job. So I took a chance on him. And he turned out to be my best employee. You know, came to work early, couldn't get him to take a break. You know, at the end of the day, it was time for him to go home. He wouldn't go home because the job meant so much to him. You know, such loyalty from, a, from a, 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 an employee is not something that's typical. We grew fast. We had five restaurants in the first five years, and we employed uh, probably about 10 people with uh, different kinds of intellectual disability, and they were all my best employees. Uh, they didn't require any supervision, um, always early to work, always looked fantastic. Uh, they were ambassadors of our organization. And I started to see a pattern. I started to see that there was a, a clear business case for hiring people with, uh, with, uh, with disabilities. It was a clear economic case. So about uh, the mid-90s, my wife and I decided to open our doors to anybody with a disability, as long as they could do the job, or as long as they could be trained to do the job. And in 25 years that we were in business, we employed 200 and, more than 250 workers with disabilities in every job, every aspect of our business, including senior management. And we, think, we believe we've hired from every disability type in that time. And the results have been enormous. Thank you. Parm, partly in response to Joel, but also what else you've heard uh, so far tonight. You're with the Port of Vancouver. Um, big responsibility here. How do you go about, because the Port of Vancouver was part of the President's Council, um, what is it that was so important to, to the port and uh, HR policies moving forward to make sure that you're creating accessible workplaces? Um, thank you. No, as so, one of the things that I would have to say is the president's group has been phenomenal. It's been just a real opportunity for learning from other great organizations. And I think part of what the barrier is, is the biases are there. 
but people are uncomfortable talking about the biases. We have to normalize that it's okay not to know what to do. And so it is normalizing that with leaders, helping them understand that you can have the conversations and providing them the training to actually be able to be effective leaders for people with multiple forms of disability. And it's not a one size fits all. So in terms of how do organizations provide success in this area and actually break these barriers, I think there's multiple things that we can do. We're also on a journey at the port. We don't have it perfect. We have a long ways to go. And I would say the journey does begin with ensuring that our leaders have the skills to ensure that they could grow people in their roles and don't see them just in the role that they got hired for. And then that comes to like the whole recruitment cycle, even how we recruit and how we do interviews, that has to change. And from a succession planning perspective, we have to look at succession planning in a different way. So from HR policies and practices, we have significant work to do still. From um, a facilities perspective, I would say we've had bigger gains. We've made our workplace a lot more accessible. We're not quite there yet, but we have done a lot in our newer buildings, but kind of retrofitting our older buildings is taking us some time. So it's a journey, but I think the most important thing is having the conversations and knowing it's okay to have the conversations, not having all the answers. You brought up a really interesting point when you started, and that was about, I'm not sure how to talk about this. I'm not sure what I'm allowed to and not allowed to say. I, I mean, I was going through some of those concerns in my preparation for tonight. Uh, I don't want to appear to be insensitive or not knowing, feeling that I should. How do we give everybody the permission to say, I don't know, let's work together to figure this out? I think it's exactly that, saying, I don't know, and let's figure this out, and then actually bringing in organizations that help us figure it out. And I think that's what we've done. Like when we've hired people that have um, autism or they're legally blind, we've actually worked with experts, and we've worked with organizations who specialize in this and help guide us and provide us advice. And I think that's kind of the key to success is I think where the failure occurs is when you think you know it all, but you just don't, and it's okay not to. Well, that's a barrier in itself, knowing that it's okay not to know, isn't it? Yeah. Charlotte, I'd like to go to you. You're coming to us from uh, Ottawa. Uh, is everything that you're hearing so far tonight uh, resonating with you? And, you know, can you add to it about how do we start to address these attitude barriers that Stephanie has brought up? Uh, in a way that will have meaningful results. Thanks so much, Stuart, and, and absolutely um, very much so. Everything's been resonating. I think, you know, to your point, point um, Parm, about it, it's okay not to know. Um, there's really a, a lot of incredible work that's been done um, by the disability rights community to advocate and, and bring about changes in um, the way we, we address and think about accessibility in, in Canada and around the world. And I don't think we need um, to, to, to think we have all the answers um, to go into situations sort of assuming that common sense will get us that way. I mean, certainly to some degree it will. Maybe common sense will tell us that a wider hallway will accommodate, you know, two um, 
uh, wheelchairs passing. Maybe it'll tell us, you know, we should have someone uh, print off the materials in larger fonts or certain small things. But if we really want to move the dial um, towards a truly barrier-free country where, uh, you know, we're embracing um, universal access, we can rely on the expertise of the people who, who live with disabilities um, and who have really um, developed all sorts of tools that we you know, should and could uh, benefit from. And, and part of that is really an attitude of, of embracing nothing without us, which is a concept um, really meant to um, highlight the need to include people with disabilities in the conversation. Um, and, and so really that when we're having these conversations, yes, yeah, certainly there's gonna be things we don't know and we do turn to the lived expertise of those in the disability rights community who can um, help us with those answers. And, and sometimes that does mean, as Parm was suggesting, you know, hiring experts to come in. And other times it's the people you're really directly working with who are the experts in their own lives. And so it's you bring in a new employee and you say, how can we help you? And uh, I think that's where some of these conversations start. And really at the core of it, um, recognizing that we all benefit um, from that kind of inclusion. And it's really about having an opportunity for everyone to fully participate in society. And how we get there is through having tough conversations, learning things we don't know, and really embracing each other's humanity. You know, uh, a couple of years ago, I had Brad McCannell in for an interview from, from Rick Hansen Foundation. And he said, somebody will say, oh, yeah, no, 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 we've got an accessible workplace. And he goes, mm -hmm. oh, really? Um, what are you doing for people who are blind? And this is an issue. Kathleen, I'm going to go to you because um, you have uh, vision challenges. Uh, do people pay attention to that? Or are they thinking, oh, no, 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 I just have to have a ramp or a lower uh, countertop or something? Like, how do we make sure that we are including everybody? Um, I, I think it depends on, on the situation so much. I was at a big technology conference in Toronto recently, and it was really hard for me to use the online ticketing app. Um, and it was a little uncomfortable to say, hey, I work in tech and innovation a lot, but this app isn't super accessible for me with the type of central vision loss that I have. So I think everyone's doing the best they can, but the other thing that I think is helpful for folks with invisible disabilities is to come forward. So um, I think creating space for conversations in meaningful ways and knowing they can be tricky to navigate. I, for a long time, hid my um, accessibility challenges. I didn't want to tell clients. I didn't want to tell friends or family, but talking about them and having conversations like everyone here is holding space for today really, I think, put us in the right direction in terms of uh, vision. I think it's it's complex. It depends what you have. There are different tools and things you can use, but it really depends. Like walking outside at night isn't something that I would do. So workplaces have to think about that. How do I get home from different conferences and events? Or do I bring a friend along? Things like that become just a little bit more of a challenge. And do you find that you, when you are now having those conversations, that people are saying, oh, okay, well then how do we solve this? How do we find the right solution or uh, opportunity for you to be able to to realize what it is that you're choosing to do? I think it doesn't always happen right away, but in having the conversations, you know, everyone has their own biases. Some people will be like, no problem, you know, expense your Uber. No problem, some clients will say, and others, you just have to find the, the space um, and work with people that you want to work with. Um, that's one thing that I've done. So that's been helpful for me, but I think it's so situational, a lot of these things. 
And Wendy, you are here um, because of the work that you do with autism, but really you also speak to anybody who has a neuro challenge. Um, as you listen to the conversation so far, where are we at in being able to accommodate and provide opportunities for people with neuro challenges? Well, thank you very much for the opportunity to be here because often autism and neurodiversity is not brought to the table, being an invisible disability as well. Um, it's, it's really relevant. Is one in 29 kids these days are diagnosed in British Columbia. Across Canada, 70% of neighborhoods have a child that is five years and younger uh, in their household. And so it's relevant, it's here, and that's just autism. And uh, for our charity, even though autism is in the name, it's very important that we serve all of those that are neurodiverse. So what that means is that you don't have to have a diagnosis. The diagnosis is completely irrelevant. We are strictly needs-based. Uh, the relevance is pretty darn significant, especially regarding employment. So when you speak to a family, and we have lived, lived experience, we have an amazing 29-year-old nonverbal son. And Mark, I just have to say, when I hear you talk, is I feel warm and fuzzy inside like when I eat one of your donuts. <laughs> I, I'll teach you all something tonight. It takes two hands, but this is the sign for donut. <laughs> and it's one that's used very frequently in our household. Um, so for the prevalence is that, uh, uh, excuse me, the relevance is that um, when you often talk to a parent with lived experience, what do they say? I want for my son or my daughter a friend and a job. And that's because a job is not just a job. A job is their entire life. It gives them purpose. It gives them hope. And it gives them often that friend. We have a very cool, we have four very cool employment initiatives going on right now. And one of them is called uh, Go Group. And Go is an acronym for Goal Oriented Employment. And it's uh, paid training. So for the um, students, they get six months employment. And I'm very proud to say that it's powered by RBC and KPMG. And um, wonderful organizations. <laughs> they are because it's not just about, you know, talking the talk, they walk the walk. Yes. And um, so for six months, our um, students get paid employment at different amazing places around town and initiatives that we create. And What's very cool is that, for example, if they're working in a coffee shop or a restaurant or training to be a barista, often they don't become that, uh, they don't do that job, but it opens up a whole nother world for them because they become confident. They realize that they can be outside of their basement. They can be out in society. They realize that they really enjoy the technology aspect of it. So then they go into a computer course and it's unbelievable how it just completely opens up the world. And changes their lives. It does change their lives. Absolutely. Did you want to add a comment there, Stephanie? I saw you sort of going, if not, I'm, yeah. I think, you know, it's, it's a, I'll transition for, from Wendy's comments about what that first experience means. There are a lot of people with disabilities in that 645,000 Canadians that are currently sitting on the sidelines waiting for somebody to invite them in, 50% of whom have post-secondary education, but they won't have a job listed on their resume. Not so they one, not one. Not one. Because they couldn't go through that 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 same employment progression that a, a typical kid would. 
And it's amazing, but that's what the employers still look for. Where's that experience on your resume? And so the fact that programs like the ones that, uh, that they're offering through PAFN offer kids that chance to have that first experience, to get that resume, to get that reference, to, to show the progress is amazing. It's so important. And it does open up a wealth. I mean, my first job was at a bakery. I don't work at a bakery. Uh, my second job was at a paint store. I don't do that either. But I was able to translate that to the next job and the next job. And that it is no different for a person with a disability. Everyone needs that first step, that first chance. And so often for people with disabilities, by the time they're entering the workforce, they've are, they're entering at a, the jobs they're applying for are not entry level. And if they are entry level, they're seen as too educated. And if they're not entry level, they're seen as, well, you don't have the employment history to back that up. So it's a bit of a catch-22. We have to flip the script. And as we talk about employment and disability and accessibility in this time, today, we're actually talking about it in a, in a time when we're trying to flip the script on the conversation around disability as a whole. Disability is not the problem. Barriers that we put up are the problem. The medical model of disability where people are less and should somehow fulfill uh, their needs themselves to get, to, to get past it is gone. We're talking about the social model of disability, where people come in a whole bunch of shapes, sizes, colors, uh, with abilities, disabilities, it doesn't really matter. It's a, it's, a, it's a human experience. The environment creates barriers to those people accessing the world. And we need to, re we need to break that down. And it, it's gonna take time and effort and conversations, some of which are going to be very uncomfortable for all of us. Well, there's a good point to go to another clip. This one from Jillian Frank. Samaya, can you play the clip Unlock Talent? We need to think about what you're doing to unlock talent that can apply to your organization. So there's a significant benefit of being able to look at your workplace, look at the design of your tools and processes to ensure that you're attracting people who have the skill sets you need that they may need some accessibility accommodations. Um, and you're taking those steps to show you're an employer of choice for those people. Then you'll get the best talent um, because you're looking at, at it through a lot of different lenses and ensuring you're getting the people who have that skill and qualification. So when we unlock talent by inviting different perspectives uh, different people in. I just want to run one more clip here. This one from Joel Denby, where he talks about problem solvers. What we're asking of people who have disabilities is to say, bring these remarkable problem solving skills that you have to our workplace. Can you play that clip for us, Samaya? The ability to problem solve on the fly, even just going to work when, you know, there's an elevator outage, you're calculating, okay, can I go up that escalator? Is it going to be safe? Am I going to get in trouble? Probably, but I'm going to do it anyway, because it's the only option on the floor. Do I have to go back on the subway to get to another train? These are things that we all deal with, with physical disabilities. 
Charlotte, I saw you nodding. Uh, this resonates with you, doesn't it? Absolutely. And, and what Stephanie was saying around flipping the script, I think is so important. Moving away from thinking uh, of disability only from the lens of sort of how can we accommodate? What do we do differently? Um, and instead thinking of accessibility first. So really looking at um, our built environment, but also um, other barriers that might be maybe in our digital infrastructure or other aspects of the way that we do things um, at work and in our communities to ensure that we're minimizing the barriers um, for all sorts of people with all sorts of different disabilities. And so that then, what we move away from is a need for as many people to uh, come forward and say, I have a disability and ask for accommodation. And instead, we're removing some of those barriers so that it really becomes the exception to need to come forward uh, and ask for an accommodation. Um, and I think that really contributes to a more inclusive society and frankly, one um, that, that values all people and allows people to fully participate, which really means, you know, being able to choose when and where and how they want to participate uh, in, in the workforce and in, in their communities as well. Sean, I'd like to... <laughs> okay, Sean, you're going to have to wait a second. Wendy, I saw you go, hang on a second, I got to add to this. <laughs> I, I, I just think that obviously that's so accurate and I really want to pick up on what Stephanie opened with uh, on attitude because for neurodiversity and autism, the one word attitude could fix everything. And the reason for that is that meaningful inclusion, meaningful employment is based upon obviously how our individuals are viewed. And um, we have an amazing program by the federal government. It's AID, which is an acronym for Autism Intellectual Disability Exchange. It's a web platform and it concentrates on resources for families and for individuals. First and foremost, it has over a million views. So it's doing obviously incredibly well. And it really focuses on um, training the community members, educating the community members, because there's this saying in autism that we follow a lot, and that is that we spend our life and our entire son's life teaching him to adapt to the world, but now it's time for the world to adapt to him. And it's not that individuals such as our sons and daughters can go out in the community and not work because they don't have the skill sets or they're not willing to learn. And like Mark says, they just make the most amazing employees. It's the attitude of the community members. And it's not necessarily their fault. And it's not necessarily negative. Like Stephanie was saying, sometimes people just don't know what to do. And one thing about training that's really important, we feel, is that um, groups and organizations um, and experts are excellent, but lived experience is the best. And lived experience in autism and neurodiversity is a massive spectrum. So it's very important to hear from individuals that are able to verbalize it and communicate, but it's also incredibly important to hear from uh, family members or caregivers that have the lived experience with up to 40% of uh, people with autism are nonverbal. And that's a massive amount uh, of the community that is so employable unbelievably employable. So meaningful inclusion, meaningful entrainment, employment is really based for us on uh, training from lived experience, uh, 
we have trained over 16,000 first responders across Canada, and we have this model where not only will it be police training police, but the police officer is also a mom or a dad or a brother or a sister. They have that lived experience. And we've done that with firefighters and call takers and different employers, uh, life labs across Canada. There are 55 phlebotomists have been trained on how to make uh, a blood draw less stressful. So that's good for all of us, right? And um, we're just you know, really passionate about the training for the community. It's on us to learn. Parm, from your perspective, you're in HR, uh, in a complex organization. How likely is it that you can start to move the needle and help to facilitate this, even especially considering, you know, the history of the Port of Vancouver and its support of this? We still face very real challenges. So what are the practical ways in which we can take next steps? I think one of the most practical ways organizations can take next steps is first making it safe for people. So if it's a visible um, disability, it's obvious and you know how to support someone. But neurodivergent is something now we're hearing a lot more of and people are feeling comfortable disclosing. And if you don't create the space for people to disclose or share, or feel comfortable to kind of go to their HR team or their direct manager, we can't provide the supports. So kind of two examples in our organization, we had two individuals that are neurodivergent, and they initially, it seemed like performance issues. And it seemed like, okay, things aren't working out. It was the leader that was trying to kind of use their leadership style to ensure that, you know, this is how we interact with each other. But that individual came and disclosed to us in HR and it made the biggest difference because then we asked the leader to figure out how, how do you, when do your point in terms of you taught your son how to kind of deal with the world, it was actually the leader's job of how do I actually work with someone that was neurodivergent. So I think it's so important for, in first to create the safety for the conversation to ha happen, for individuals to feel that they can go to somebody and share the spectrum that they're on and what support they need, and then create that conversation so that they're actually getting the support they need and whatever may need to be adjusted. Communication style might be written, verbal may not, not, might not work, So, and it's not one size fits all. Sean, I'll come to you in a moment, but Mark, just something has... Uh... Uh, struck me in the conversation here. Do organizations need to say, okay, here's the mix of roles and responsibilities that are needed to complete what our business model is? Can we reconfigure what different roles are and say, look, at a part of this job can be done by a person who has one challenge or another. Here's another part that can fit into that so that what we're doing is we're shifting around responsibilities a little bit so that we can bring someone in as a support person because we're saying you can't go out on that construction site because it may not be safe, but you can still be a valuable member of the team solving a wide range of challenges because you know how to uh, solve problems. Is, is this a part of the way in which organizations have to start to change their thinking? <clears throat> yeah, you're absolutely right. So there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a couple of things that we need to look at uh, 
these are the things that I call the three elements of success. When you have untapped talent and you try to get that talent into the workplace, you, you need the uh, employer to be on your side. And so there's three things that we require from the employer. <clears throat> the first is tone and intent. We need the employer, we need the CEO, we need the business owner. In my case, with 14 Tim Hortons, I was a small business, so it was myself. We had to set the tone and I had to set the intent uh, that we are going to be an inclusive employer and get rippled down throughout the ranks when the CEO or the, uh, or the owner of the business makes that intention clear to the rank and file. <clears throat> The second thing is in the interview process, you've got to make modifications for people with disabilities. Um, and the best way to do that is to do what we used to call ATP, ask the person. And the best way to find out what a person needs when they come into the workforce is to simply ask them. You know, I've had people come to work for me who are completely deaf, who are profoundly deaf, who wanted to be a baker working in a restaurant, working in a kitchen that works on audible warnings. And so an employer would easily say, well, it's not going to work out. If you're deaf, how can you work in a kitchen with audible warnings? But they've taken the time to apply. They're smart people. They've applied. So they've, they've, they know something I don't know, even though I'm deaf myself. <clears throat> and so I say to them, take an hour, go in the kitchen. You figure this out. You find, you come on back and tell me how you're going to do this job. And each time they came back to me and they said, this is how I'm going to do the job. This is the accommodation I require. And by the way, that accommodation is not going to cost very much money at all. And so we need to do these three things. We need to set the tone and intent. We need to make sure that the interview process is changed as necessary. And one of the things that we did in the interview process, which I found very important, is we used to ask the question. We used to say, you will be working with employees who have a disability. How do you feel about that? And so typically the response would be, oh, yes, my mother is in a wheelchair. My brother has low vision. And so it's not an issue. But you're planting that seed right away that this is an inclusive workplace and you would be expected to be part of that inclusive workplace, even if you're not disabled yourself. And so it pays dividends when you ask that question. We used to extend that into management. So we would, uh, we would typically promote from within and we would sit down with somebody who we suspect will be a good manager, and we asked them the question, uh, state, hey, you're going to be supervising people who have disabilities now. How do you feel about that? And that's how you continue on that change in culture. And that's what you really want in the workplace in order to be fully inclusive is a change in culture. That doesn't happen overnight. Even in a small business like mine, it takes time. Stephanie, I see you nodding and wanting to add to uh, what Mark is saying. Yeah, I would like to add. I, I think he's right. I think, you know, people with disabilities bring that that innovation, and they have to be asked. But I would add, why don't we just ask everybody? <laughs> what is it you need to be successful in the interview? What is it you need to be successful in the workplace? People with disabilities have had the right, legally, uh, to not be discriminated against for years. But it continues. And if you think about it, 
when we're employers and we're talking, it's how we how do we talk about people with disabilities? How do we talk about wanting these people in our organizations? Do do we say, oh yes, um, well tell us what you need, and um, we know we have a duty to accommodate. That kind of doesn't sound like you really want me there. But if you said, hey, what do we need to do to make you successful? Now I feel like I can ask for what I need, that it's not going to be a barrier to that employment. I think you know, flipping the script is also about flipping the script about how we talk about disability and how we talk about inclusion. So I mentioned Arnold Cheng in my introduction. He has been working with us for about six years now comes to see us in a wheelchair and we go, uh, okay, uh, you can edit, uh, you can do all these other things, but he can't go out and uh, set up the camera and throw up the lights and so on. Okay, so we just start changing, moving our uh, the job around a little bit. He does the parts that he does and then adds on to what that contribution is, fills in other gaps that we have, and he's a remarkably uh, important member of our team um, and has been so for a number of years. One of the strangest things, of course, was in the interview. Uh, I went, uh, okay, how do I ask this question? Um, do you think that you could use our washroom? Uh, can you go try it to see if your wheelchair can fit in there? And he goes, well, let me go check. <laughs> yep, that'll work. You're hired. <laughs> But it seems like you have to have a little. You you have to have a willingness to go out on on a limb to say, I, I want to make a difference. Sean, we have to go to Slido, and I can't leave you standing out uh, sitting out there all by yourself all this time. Please, this is an important question off the top uh, here. That top one there. Yeah. Thanks, Stuart. How can we make it easier for the persons with different abilities? In my experience with having a physical disability, I'm always the one working so hard to advocate for myself, which becomes extremely mentally tiring and frustrating. It's an interesting question. Uh, Kathleen, I wanna to go to you because I'm also thinking about a, a, another clip from Joel Demby that we're not gonna run right now because uh, I'm gonna paraphrase it. He says he tells people you gotta use your voice. How important is that? I think it's incredibly important to kind of have conversations and and make an impact. It's why I've started to tell people um, about being legally blind instead of hiding it. My parents were like, oh, you know, don't talk about it. You won't be, no one will want to hire you. You're not going to be able to work different things that they thought just because they didn't know, right? Um, in, in terms of uh, how it impacts, I think there isn't a certain amount of labor that you hold as um, the person advocating with your employer, with your client, as you're negotiating what that looks like. Um, I think you have to, you know, own that that's part of the conversation that you're going to have to have. But I think if people ask questions, I'm always really open to people saying like, oh, well, what can you see? What makes it easier for you? Um, and you don't have to ask them in the right way. There's no real right or wrong way to do it. You're, you're being pretty open and transparent with me. And then I can do that back with you. So in terms of how I have those conversations, that's been helpful for me personally. But I do think there's a lot of extra labor that you hold when you're an employee, whether it's switching from Teams to Zoom to Hangout. That's hard for me. I don't have great central vision, so I have to. my computer has to help me do those things. So I do think there's little things that you can just think about. And it would be different for anyone with a different accessibility challenge. Mine's pretty unique to central vision. Um, 
in whatever case you are, making little tweaks and changes in behavior is so helpful. Um, so if I have a day of meetings, I have to put just 10 minutes between each and every meeting and I'm open with my team about that. I might not get there on time. It might be harder for me to find mute or unmute. WebEx, I was on the other day, I couldn't figure out WebEx for the life of me. So just different things that people can think about. Stephanie. Yeah, I think it can be exhausting for people. Now, I don't, I can't hide my disability, so it's kind of obvious. Um, but for people whose disability isn't out there, it is an added burden to have to tell people something they won't just accept. Somebody will hold a door for me. They're not necessarily going to know that somebody else might not be able to see where the door is. Um, so don't underestimate the power of allyship. Mm, that's a good line. There is, yeah. <laughs> that's not mine, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> the, the reality is that people with disabilities are expected to advocate for themselves over and over and over again and to tell their story over again and over again. And, and it's exhausting and, and in some ways demoralizing. Um, we, have to, we have to plan everything differently. We have to ask stupid questions when we're going out to lunch with friends. Well, can I get in the door? How many of you ask, can I get in the door when you get a lunch invitation? I have to do it every time. And every time I have to ask, and is there a washroom? And is there parking? And is and it's exhausting. So if you can do that in advance for people on your team, for people that are on your team that you might not know have a disability, that you've said in advance, the rest we've checked, the restaurant is accessible, there is parking, there is a washroom. Um, the meeting we're holding, we're holding it on this, there, we, we, we've got this technology, it's available, the captions will be, will be on for those who need them, the interpretation is available. Just do it by a matter of course. Just, it's just how we now do things. We ask these questions. We ask, are there any food allergies? <laughs> Why can't we ask the other questions? So Joel Denby brought up a point, and Wendy, I'm, I'll get you to speak to it. He talks about ableism, which was a term that I hadn't heard before. He said, but people with disabilities get looked at, are you capable of doing this? And that goes back to, to barriers, but having to use your voice and speak up uh, has to be exhausting. And that you have to have, as, uh, as uh, Stephanie just said, sometimes you have to have allies and, and people advocating for you as well. I can give you a great example of the power of, how did you say allyship? Okay. Um, so Tamara Ruman, president and CEO of YVR Airport, with her help, our charity has partnered over five years to train over 26,000 employees on Seattle and there. So we're talking all of the different departments there. And can you think of anything more stressful than going through an airport for all of us? But again, I think to Stephanie's point about uh, it, it should be for everybody that we're looking at this is that it's really uh, stressful for somebody with autism and neurodiversity, but for us too. So when I was working with Tamara on setting up this training partnership, 
I said to her, I really hope that this is going to decrease the amount of complaints that are going to come across your desk. You know, she was telling me about how concerned she was about this uh, recent poor young man that was traveling through with his parents, had a very bad experience. And she said to me, no, Wendy, you're looking at this all wrong. We want families to feel welcomed. And that was a light bulb moment for me. I had never imagined that my son with autism would be welcomed anywhere and welcomed in an airport. And that's really what you're talking about there is the perspective on this. It needs to be changed. I need to give credit where credit was due. The ableism comment came from Jillian Frank when we were doing the interview with her. It's a very important point. As a matter of fact, I have a clip uh, right now that I'd like to play. Samaya, could you play that? I think there's still a lot of ableism in the sense of people thinking that anyone who has a disability is less capable, less intelligent, less able to do the job, and they're the ones who need to do the work to become sort of normal or to fit into the office environment. So there's this big culture shift to say, we as companies need to be the one to take the steps to create a more accessible, broader systemic approach to ensuring that there's inclusion at the workplace of all of these people. So Parm, that's much to your point earlier, isn't it? It's, this is where it becomes the responsibility of the organization. It does. It has to become the uh, responsibility of the organization. Like I've done a lot of work in DEI for a long time, and it's the same pattern. It's don't expect the people that have the lived experience to actually become your teachers. You're actually placing the burden on them. So there's such emotional attacks that's attached to that that I don't think we talk about enough. And it is important for people to be able to feel safe and share, but don't expect them to be their teacher, uh, be your teacher all the time. I think that's where organizations can make the biggest difference and where kind of roles like mine can actually make a huge impact in training our leaders so they actually have the skills and understand words like ableism and allyship and how are you actually being effective. Sean, we have another question here from Jason and it's directed to Mark. Uh, it is. Can you share that please? Uh, Mark, did your employees encounter any overtly negative customer biases and attitudes directed towards their disabilities, perceived or real, or even from their colleagues? If so, how did you navigate those situations with your teams? So you fix that with tone and intent. Of course, we had negative uh, issues. We had, thankfully, there were very, very few. Um, customers tend to um, gravitate towards employees who have a disability. It's important to remember that, you know, the, the, the statistics show that 23% of the Canadian population have a disability, but when you add in you know, close family members, mom, dad, brother, sister, son, daughter, you're now at 65% of the Canadian population. So, you know, in my 14 restaurants, I've got about 15,000 customers a day, um, 65% of them are directly affected by disability. They either have a disability or, or, or they have a loved one at home who, who has a disability. The culture shift takes time. And once you've, once you've created that culture shift, uh, those sorts of issues start to go away, especially internally. We had employees, we had managers who would come to me and say, 
Mark, this is not working out. We need to remove such and such, or we need to remove this person because it's not working out. When we sit down and talk about it, we find out that it's really them buying into a series of myths and misperceptions or stereotypes. And they're not looking critically at what this person, what this employee is doing uh, from, 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 their, from their, their, their work ethic and the job that they're completing. And once, once you talk it over, once you look through it, and, and get them to focus more on what this person is doing, you realize, hey, their productivity is just the same as everybody else's, if not better. You know, their absenteeism is better than everybody else's. Like, once, you, once you've had that discussion internally with your management team or with employees who, who may hesitate to, to work with people with disabilities, uh, that's when you start to see some changes. It's very, very rare. It has happened, but it's very rare when you have to take a manager and say, you know what, this is not working out. You don't get it. It's not working out. I can't train you. I can't get you to understand this. I can count on one hand how many times that happened in 25 years. So to answer the question, it's rare. It does happen, and there's easy ways to fix it. What was the response from the customers that supported you as a company making these opportunities available? Was that a business advantage for you? Absolutely, it's a business advantage. 65% of the people who came through my restaurants every day are affected by disability. So how does that affect their decision-making? I had I had customers who would call us, email us, send us texts and say, are you the employer who hires people with disabilities? And we'll say, yes, okay, we're coming there for lunch. So if you have, and this is the ones, these are just the ones who told us that we're doing this. And so we increased the, uh, uh, the, 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 the uh, transactions. We increased uh, sales uh, by being an inclusive employer. It's not just the customers coming into the restaurant more often. Uh, it's also the fact that we we re recognize a clear business case. As absenteeism was lower, our safety ratings were higher, our innovating ratings went to the roof uh, because people with disabilities have different problem-solving skills. That's just a, that's just a given. And for us, being in retail, our employee retention was very, very high. Uh, around 40% for us in our 14 restaurants, about 40% compared to a normal 100 to 125%. For an operation that's well run, just like ours, we're all the same. Uh, I wasn't a better operator than anybody else, but our retention rates were way higher than anyone And if you put that into dollars and cents, you're taking more money to the bank. And that's why it's important to talk about it this way. This is how you encourage employers to step up when they see that there's a reason to do this. There's a business case for this. Right? We've talked about uh, legislative compliance in the past. We've talked about those charity jobs. You know what? It doesn't work. It hasn't worked. And we've, got to under get, uh, we've got to get businesses to understand the real tangible reason for being an inclusive employer. Samaya, we have one last clip from Jillian Frank. Can you please play that? And then, Charlotte, I'm going to come to you. In British Columbia, we've always had the Human Rights Code that requires employers, requires people offering services to the public to accommodate persons with disabilities. The new legislation, which is the Accessibility Act, public sector is required to take a more proactive approach to creating a, dis a disability or an accessibility plan. So what they're required to do is think about their built environment, their technology, their processes, their policies, 
and whether or not that is accessible to or creates barriers for people who have disabilities. So Charlotte, two points here. One is it's human rights. And number two, what's the changing legislative uh, environment right now at the federal level? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that point about this being a human rights issue is, is so important. And certainly, you know, different um, logic will resonate with different people um, and, and for different purposes. And we really recognize that for a lot of people, the business cases is, is uh, the one that might rec might resonate. But I think there's also a humanity to bring to this conversation that really we're talking about um, so many people in our communities and and you know, we're not talking about just this sort of subset of society that, uh, you know, we, we is um, so different from ourselves. Uh, if we are people who, you know, don't presently um, consider ourselves to be living with a disability, we may be in the future, we may have relatives who are, and I mean, the statistics really just show how how broad this is um, in our society. So really, I think the human rights approach to this is really recognizing that people have a right to live free from discrimination, and that includes discrimination on the basis of their disability. And we have had legislation to that effect in the, in the federal um, jurisdiction. So uh, in Canada, we've, we've had that for quite some time with the Canadian Human Rights Act, but what that means has evolved over time. So what we consider to be a disability has grown to be a more inclusive definition that recognizes things like invisible disabilities, that recognizes that disabilities may come and go. There may be temporary in nature in the course of somebody's life, for example, but nonetheless, um, very impactful. So that, that is certainly a progression. But the piece that I think, and you raised this in your, in your question, Stuart, that is really exciting and I think important um, is, this, is this shift um, towards what I called sort of an accessibility first approach earlier, which is what the Accessible Canada Act really promises. And that is moving us more meaningfully towards a barrier-free society, one in which people aren't um, seeking particular accommodation, but rather we're working towards proactively thinking about what exists in our built environment, what exists in our ways of doing, in our digital infrastructure, and all of that, that create barriers for people um, to access uh, workplaces and uh, and you know other places where they receive services or or um, live in, in the community and so that shift is really significant and I think what I what I would add to that is um, it's so important that we don't um, stop paying attention and pushing for what it can and should mean for Canada to be truly barrier free so we have this framework at the federal level that helps us in the in the way we are now approaching accessibility that you know federal employers and um, private sector and the federal jurisdiction have this obligation to have accessibility plans and to be proactively thinking about this but that's really going to be impactful and meaningful if we continue to build on that framework with regulations and i think a lot of the momentum that has come for this change has been coming from people who are living with disabilities 
um, from their families and other advocates. And so there's a lot owed to them for the progress that has been made and, and a lot um, that needs to continue in terms of pressure to keep moving the dial towards this big promise we have in Canada to be barrier free by 2040. Okay, I have a question, uh, and I'm not entirely sure how to word it because I, I recognize that there are some people with uh, disabilities who may say, well, that's great that you want to make the workplace accessible to everybody, but I, no matter what you do, don't feel like I'm going to fit in or that that's what I want to do. So how do we work with them to give them access to opportunities that will make them feel as though they are contributing members. Because I think no matter what, what we're talking about is saying, I matter. I do things that make a difference. I may not want to work in you know, a coffee shop or a, a heavy-duty mechanics shop or these places, but how do we collectively create opportunities that allow them, these people, to feel like they are contributors because I, I think it's a very important part of being a human being. Microphones are going up all over the house. Start with you, Parm. Okay. And I would just say we have to first re sh shift our thinking. We actually can't think of it as I matter. Of course they matter. As organizations, it's like how do we make this? It's our job to figure this out. And if we actually figure this out in the right way and actually getting the right voices at the table, we will create inclusive environments, but someone shouldn't have to ask the question that I have. Like that's the question that organizations need to be asking. Are we an organization that matters for people? That's actually, I think we got to reframe it and just kind of going to the accessibility plan. It was like, it came up fast. We're federally regulated, but it was a fantastic exercise for us as an organization because it allowed us to have conversations with departments and different areas that don't didn't think about it. So the technology team, the accounting team, like throughout the organization or facilities team, they all had to contribute to the plan. So it started the conversation. So from my perspective, accessibility plan has been fantastic because it started the conversation of it not just being an HR problem, it's everybody's conversation to have. Wendy? We have an amazing federal program that uh, that is directly addressing this, and it's called Employment Works Canada. It's a 12-week program, and what it does first and foremost is it explores with the individual and their family their strengths. What do they like to do? What are their preferences? What are they good at? What don't they even know that they're good at yet? And we really focus for a long time on their strengths. And then with them and their families, we also focus on what things do they not like to do so much. And also we focus on the social norms of things that we can help them navigate. But it doesn't end there. We also focus on the employers that we want to work with and we want to train for meaningful inclusion, meaningful lives, meaningful employment. And I'll just give you a quick concrete grid example. In a large hotel chain, and this is where we systemically need to change some things, there's this wonderful young man that really wanted to be a housekeeping attendant. He enjoys cleaning, he enjoys uh, order, enjoys repetitive nature of tasks, and he's this big, big, strong lad. But he was not able to complete the number of rooms in the time allotment, and that's understandable. 
So one thing that he was really good at is stripping the linens off of the bed, grabbing the towels and all of the heavy stuff and carrying it off to where it needed to go. And if you want and had to make the business case of how much faster that housekeeping team would be with his asset and what he loved to do and the team members loved having him, but in large chains, and again, this is understandable, they were not able to break that protocol, you know, across an international chain. Mm. And it stopped right there until we came along. And so we're continuing to explore that. And that's how we're going to be changing the attitudes. So Kathleen, you run a smaller uh, shop. How many people you got working in your company? Um, so my company was sold to a larger company. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> in January, I had five people working with me. So as a smaller a company uh, and you being entirely sensitive uh, to these issues, what were you able to do? Because it's easy for somebody to say, well, that's, that's great for a larger company, but I'm not a larger company. So how do I make uh, this, uh, these opportunities available to people when we don't have those same resources? I think in a small team, we're so lucky because we could have conversations on what worked best for each individual in really meaningful and authentic ways and how we could help. So for some people, going into an office is a really difficult task. You know, for someone who maybe we had someone on our team who had ADHD, they can find different areas where they can focus really well, different times a day they could do their work. Sometimes it wasn't first thing in the morning. There are no issues with that. They're amazing working from like 9 p.m. till midnight and can power out writing some of the best content I've ever seen. So I think it was, we were in a position of privilege and being such a small team, we were able to just really have authentic dialogue on what works for you, the individual. And I think everyone, all of us as humans, we all want to be seen. We all want to be heard. We all want to be listened to, right? It's so fundamental in us. So I think just do that for everyone. And one of the points that I really loved is we could all have an accessibility challenge at some point in our life. I look at friends and family who've had a concussion and are going back to work and recovering. This isn't just, you know, one person that you know. It's not an aunt. It's not a friend, a son, a daughter. Um, this could impact you. How would you want to be treated in that situation? Because I think when you bring it back to self a little bit, you can say, what questions would I want to be asked? And those are usually the right questions to ask in these situations. Stephanie. I'm going to go back just a little bit to your, to your question, you know, okay, well, what do you say to somebody who says they don't want, don't feel included? The Accessible Canada Act sets, sets us on a new path. And it's really great that the federal government and federally regulated employers are, are now undertaking these plans and, and doing this thoughtful work about how do they remove the barriers on behalf of all. But how many people get up in the morning and go, oh, good, I'm going to go interact with my federal government today? <laughs> right? Nobody I, I mean, know. <laughs> I mean, th th this, this, is, this alone will not create an accessible experience uh, in, of life for people. Right? So the provinces are also coming along on this journey. They have a role to play. The municipalities have a role to play. That's, the, that's where... That's where the rubber hits the road uh, in terms of accessibility and community, right? And the private sector has a role. And individuals, and as individuals, we have a role. I think what I would say is, don't wait to be told you have to make a plan. Think about it now. Start thinking about it. There's nothing, there's nothing preventing you from doing this work other than yourself. 
I have to uh, share a, a wonderful little cartoon. I don't have it that Arnold had shared with me a couple of years ago. Outside of school, there's all these kids lining up to go inside, but there's snow and the janitor is out there cleaning off the stairs and there's a wheelchair ramp and there's one kid in a wheelchair. And the kid in the wheelchair says, well, when are you going to get to the wheelchair ramp? And the guy goes, after I clear the stairs. But the kid in the, in the wheelchair says, yeah, but if you just clean off the ramp, we can all get in. <laughs> I think this is the way that we have to be thinking about things. Mark, when you looked at uh, addressing some of these challenges in your business, because you were a series of small businesses, what were the costs that you had to incur to be able to make sure that you could provide the right tools for your staff? Because I think, and I'm asking this question from the perspective that I think a lot of people go, it costs a lot of money to do this. I can't afford it. Well, the the cost is really a myth. Um, we're looking at about 65% of our employees with disabilities didn't require any accommodation at all. And about 35% required a small accommodation that would be around uh, $500 or less and most of that was extra training. And only about 4% of uh, employees with disabilities require an expensive or ongoing accommodation. Uh, so it was, it was really low. But the interesting thing is uh, they're adaptive. And to your story about clearing snow, um, that's an adaptive answer that the person in the wheelchair gave. Right? You clear it for me, you clear it for everybody. And that's what happens in, in, in the workplace when you make uh, when you make uh, accommodations. You, you make accommodations for everybody. <clears throat> One of the stories I always like to tell is this, I got a job, this is 25 years ago, I found a job for a man who wanted to work in a factory. And he was putting together uh, electric motors. And he was having difficulty. Um, he was good at putting them together, but he was having difficulty knowing which part came next. It was about 40 different parts. So we made him a template. And he used the template to be able to put them together. Uh, two months after he started that job, we received a call from the owner of the company looking for 40 more templates because the man who was disabled, the worker with a disability, was actually working faster than everybody else because he had the, the template. So when you make accommodations with someone, it's totally adaptable to everybody else. I feel like we're just getting started, but we're almost out of time. And so I just want to go back to each one of you and uh, for some closing thoughts. Charlotte, I'd like to start with you, and then we'll work our way across the panel. Thanks, Stuart. So I, I, I think we've really heard just so much insight on this panel, and I think in many ways it is an example of, of the concept of, of nothing without us. So we've heard from many people with lived experience of disabilities, of family members, of employees with disabilities, uh, talking about um, the ways that they have uh, you know, changed their perspectives, changed how they're doing things and what they're calling on the rest of us to do. And I think we really need to heed those calls. It's it's very clear um, from this conversation, I, I hope to everyone listening that um, a truly accessible society, um, you know, one where everyone uh, has the freedom to choose where, how, when to participate and can do so fully is really a society in which everyone benefits. Um, and, and I hope that that message is really ringing true. And, and one of the things that I just 
want to leave folks with because it isn't something we've had a chance to maybe connect the dots on so far in the conversation. And I think it's an important piece is just to really recognize that a lot of the accommodations we're talking about um, or with respect to sort of one aspect of people's lives and people with disabilities as, as anybody um, are people with complex lives and all sorts of different aspects of their practices and of their identity. So, you know, accommodation in the workplace is also, um, you know, allowing someone to participate in the religious holidays. It's also, you know, organizing schedules to allow for someone to care for uh, um, an aging parent. There's lots of forms of accommodation and it's not so unusual or different in the workplace that we, we need to accommodate. We, under the Canadian Human Rights Act federally, you know, you need to accommodate on, on 13 different grounds. And so I really just encourage people to sort of think about this as just one part of the many ways in which we make our workplaces more inviting, more inclusive, and really um, better places where we can all succeed. Uh, I think that's that's really important in recognizing um, that, uh, you know, alongside this, this thread that I think has been really clear in the conversation that these conversations ought to be led by the expertise of those with lived experience. And I really thank those on this panel who have shared those experiences with us. Parm, I'd like to go to you next. First, I wanna just thank everyone for the opportunity to participate in this panel. I would say like the big part of the goal tonight was to also learn. I've picked up so much um, and learned so much during this conversation. And I think we're on a journey. The port has done some great work, but I really look forward to partnering with more organizations and how do we do more? There's just, we've just on the tipping point. Wendy. I've referenced a few times the word meaningful and to us what we mean by that is meaningful inclusion is about are the first responder trainings working? And we've had so many police officers come to our center afterwards and saying, hey, we use this tip and trick and it actually worked and it's just so powerful and you can see just how happy they are. And on the meaningful employment, it's another one that we're really passionate about because we don't want to just be ticking boxes. Same thing on the trainings is we don't want to say we've trained this many numbers, you know, we've received this funding for this many. And we find that too many organizations, I think innocently and naively are doing that. Same thing on the employment. How many times have we said not that, oh, we've employed so many people with autism. Have we checked in with the people with autism and their families, how happy they are and how much retention that we have in the company that they're really, truly happy. And my parting thought would be if I could, as an autism mom and uh, entrepreneur is a sort of call to action. And so my one ask would be along the lines of attitude is that we say a lot, even just in the community, one line, how can I help? So if you see, a young one or an older adult in the grocery store and you see that the caregiver or the family with them are having a difficult time, the person with autism or developmental disabilities having a meltdown, you just go over and say, how can I help? And that's the training that we've done with the first responders. It's pretty much just time, space, compassion, following the caregiver's lead, following the family's lead. And I really did find it funny in the police training when we started this, they said, well, we have to talk about TPI. And I think, okay, what's TPI? And they said, third party intermediaries. And that's the caregivers and the family members. So to all the TPIs out there, <laughs> keep going. Kathleen. 
everyone's um, said so many things. I like how you, how can I help in any situation? Because I think asking that question, I'll struggle with wayfinding signage often in airports and people kind of, you know, what's this person doing? I'm maybe taking a photo and zooming in or getting something read out to me. And if someone just said, Hey, can I help you find your gate? Or you had a gate change and now you've got to go here. That, that's huge for me instead of maybe having like a little meltdown in the bathroom or myself having a hissy fit. Um, someone just offers me that help. So I think all of us are at this um, part of the journey where if we ask to help or we say what we need, that's super impactful. Mark? Our time is now. When you think about the fact that we've got a major labor shortage across this country, uh, the people who have disabilities in this country are a major solution to that major labor shortage. So we need to redouble our efforts and we need to be able to unlock that talent now more than ever before. And we've got the people across this country, 550,000 graduates from the last five years, people who have a disability, 270,000 of them post-secondary educations, and those are the people who have never worked a single day. Those are the people who don't have marketplace attachment. So we're talking about people who are skilled, educated, ready to go, and we've got a labor shortage. We've got to put that together. And so our time is now. Stephanie. I think it, I've really enjoyed this. I've enjoyed hearing other perspectives, and, and I said this before, but I'm thrilled to to, to hear Mark speak. I've, I've known of his, his efforts for a long time. There is a lot of momentum. We are building momentum and that is good. But we are still at risk of saying, well, we'll do it when. We'll do it when there's budget. Well, we don't really have, we're not sure we can do that. Well, what's the business case? What's the business case for not doing it? I can tell you when 22% of the population is 22% of every market segment, it's 22% of your employees, whether they have disclosed to you or not, and it's 22% of your customer base. And that's before you account for all their family and friends. So we have to stop accommodating inaccessibility. We have to start demanding it from the start. So we can all be advocates. You know, I was reading the brochure or the booklet from the Dr. Peter Center as I prepared for this. And in there, there was this wonderful paragraph. It said, underserved communities hear an awful lot of four-letter words. They use an awful lot of four-letter words. The one we choose to use is love. And I think that you know, we want to live in this community where um, we appreciate one another, um, where we celebrate one another, uh, and we build what to me is a really unique experiment in democracy, in the way in which we manifest ourselves as a country. And I think that if we continue to move forward, recognizing everybody and the contributions that they can make, then we can build that country, continue to build that country that we see unfolding in front of our eyes. I wanna thank our amazing panel tonight. I wanna to thank all of our incredible 
sponsors who have been so good in supporting us. And I want to invite you all to sign up for our newsletter so you know when the next Conversations Live is happening, which, by the way, is on November 21st. And we're going to be talking about economic reconciliation. The other great wound in Canadian society. How do we bring us all together so that we all benefit from this land bounty? And then in December, Asia Pacific, where to from here? Because as we know, that landscape is shifting very quickly right at the moment. So thank you so much for joining us tonight in person and online. Please tune in and look for clips over the next few days on a variety of different social media uh, venues. Thank you. Good night. Thank you.